0: Shadow Citizen. Shadow Citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your host, Rachel L. McIntosh. All right. Once
1: again i am so happy to be here with all of you i'm rachel l mcintosh i'm the host of shadow citizen and tonight we have a guest that i think you will all recognize if you've listened to the show before james perloff he is the author of shadows of power he wrote for the new american magazine for nearly three decades his newest book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, is a comprehensive look at this, what he calls the satanic drive for world government. He also wrote the script for Free Minds Films' latest documentary, Shadow Ring. It's an excellent movie. You should watch it if you haven't seen it. He was a lead-off speaker at the 2015 New York City Liberty Fest. His website is jamesperloff.com, and he's on Twitter, where he's very accessible as James Perloff. And I'd like to introduce him right now. James, are you here?
0: I'm here. Thanks for having me back oh, on the show.
1: Oh, right on. Okay. Well, tonight, what we're going to do? um, I want to talk about. You're a prolific blogger, by the way. People, if you go to his website, jamesproloff.com, you'll see a bunch of his writing. And I know he has a new blog post that he wants to talk about, and has to do with 9/11, which is a big, um, hot topic for me because my books also deal with 9/11. So why don't you start off, James, about what you want to talk about 9-11? You have like a new theory you want to hit off.
0: Yeah, what I want to do is uh, reconstruct the events of 9-11 as closely as we can and move closer towards the truth on this. And I want to talk about uh, three major components of 9-11, what brought the towers down, what initially struck the towers and what happened to the planes and the passengers. And I know some people in the audience will say, you know what, this has been gone over hundreds of times. Um, but uh, I, I do hope that we'll bring some fresh things to light tonight on uh, the search for truth. And uh, by the way, my views are my views. I'm not uh, trying to be dogmatic about anything. Um, and Rachel, also, I wanted to mention that before we talk about how 9-11 was done, Uh, there's a, uh, very valid complaint that's often voiced in amongst the people in the truth movement, which is, you know, it'll run something like this. You know, I don't really care how it was done. The important thing is we know that the government story was bogus. Let's not have any infighting about how it was done. The important thing is to find the criminals and bring them to justice. And I think that is a very legitimate grievance. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are a prosecutor, you have to talk about both the who and the how. I mean, you can't just go up there and say Joe Dotes committed this murderer without showing how he committed it. You have to prove how he committed it. And at the same time, a prosecutor doesn't go before a jury and say how a crime was done and not uh, identify the suspect. And so you can't separate the who from the how. So I primarily want to talk about the how of nine one one, But I want to start out by talking about the very important who. Okay. And um, I believe that there is a a phrase we use in the nine eleven movement that I think has confused the issue a little bit. And that phrase is nine eleven was an inside job. And what I mean by that is that I believe it would a more correct rendering would be nine eleven was an outside job done by Israeli operatives, but with the cooperation, consent, and some help. From the American side, and if you want a perfect analogy to that Rachel, you recently did a fantastic interview on the USS Liberty with Bryce Lockwood. Uh, uh, yeah, that was, that, uh, was a da- that was a dynamite interview, and um, he even pointed out that the USS Liberty attack led to nine eleven because the Israelis knew that they could attack us with impunity after that. But the analogy I want to point out is this: uh, on in the case of the USS Liberty, it's true that. Lyndon Johnson, the president, and the uh, Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, helped out by recalling the fighters sent to rescue the Liberty twice, and they ordered a subsequent cover-up. But the actual hands-on grunt attack was carried out by the Israelis. I mean, it wasn't the U.S. Air Force attacking attack the U.S. It Liberty. It was Israelis who were carrying out the actual attack. And that is, I believe, the, the proper um, framework for discussion of 9-11
1: Okay. Um, well, no. So, go okay,
0: ahead. Go ahead. Go
1: back ahead. up because I'm. This is a big deal to say. Okay, the Israelis did 9/11. Israel. Israel is our, our ally. It's our only ally in the Middle
0: <laughs> East. <laughs> Even so, Netanyahu yeah. would laugh. if you heard you say that to himself? Yeah. Okay. No, but All I just right. to um,
1: tell, walk people through this because this is okay. a big accusation. Even <laughs> most people have not heard of the USS Liberty. Just so you know, people that well, listen to my show, of course, have listened to it, and they just listen to the um that the same exact interview you're talking about. In fact, my mother went last night to have, you know, dinner with a friend, and she told her friends that, "Oh, my daughter interviewed some people on this ship, the USS Liberty. They had no idea. And the husband in this family, he had been in the Marines. And he's they're 70 years old. They had never heard of this, ever. In fact, the woman that they were at dinner with said, Oh, you should make sure Rachel does background checks on the people she does on her ship.
0: <laughs> okay, they live in the matrix, okay. Yeah. Uh, the U.S.'s Liberty was covered up and, uh, the, the uh, Captain McGonigal, the, the commander of the ship, had to get his, um, his, uh, Congressional Medal of Honor in a Navy shipyard. The only, uh, uh, uh Congressional Medal of Honor winner, uh, not to, uh, get White House recognition. And that's, you know, I think you kind of sense the power of APAC. Rachel, when you did that interview and the um, the impact, because uh, we're not talking, people think, well, how could Israel have that much influence in the United States? It's a tiny country, but it's the Rothschild proxy state, and the Rothschilds are the most powerful um, family in the world, the richest uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, it, it, let's talk a little about uh, the evidence that Israel was involved with 9-11. Yeah,
1: please do, um, please do.
0: And I want to recommend people go to a particular blog post that I think is, is the most comprehensive and concise. It's, uh, the Wiki Spooks post called 9-11 Israel Did It. And let me just give you a sampling of highlights, okay? We'll start with the dancing Israelis. I think most of our, our, our audience will be familiar with it. The five dancing Israelis, at least two of whom were later proven to be, uh, Mossad agents, they photographed the event. They photographed the Twin Towers collapsing. And they high-fived each other. They were laughing, dancing. They were, uh, they photographed themselves holding a lighter in front of the collapsed buildings. Now, these guys are pretty sick minded because they were, they were uh, cheering for the death of thousands of Americans. Now, when they drove off in a van, a neighbor wrote down the, the license plate doesn't even mention on CNN, but uh, was not mentioned by CNN was when they were arrested. It turned out that they were Israelis. And, um, uh, two months later, they were, uh, sent back to Israel, which, uh, you know, for guys who knew all about the attack in advance, that's, would be surprising until you realize that the man put in charge of the Justice Department's investigation of 9-11 was Mike, was, uh, Michael Chertoff. Now, Chertoff's parents were founding citizens of Israel and his mother was an, uh, agent of the Mossad. Now, what, is it surprising that a most, the, the son of a Mossad agent sends home all the arrested is- Israelites? after 9-11. Wait, um, excuse me,
1: Excuse me. Chertoff's parents were founders of Israel?
0: Found, they were founding citizens of Israel going oh. back to 48. and his mother was in the Mossad. Oh. Then, um, how about airport security? Uh, at all three airports where the uh, high craft, uh, aircraft took off, the security is run by Huntsley USA, a wholly owned subsidiary of ICTS International, which is owned by two Israelis. So, airport security is in Israeli hands then we've got lucky larry silverstein the new owner of the world trade center now as most of our listeners know he uh, he he bought it less than two months before the event and he invested 124 million he got an insurance payout of almost 5 billion that's a that's you know that's a pretty good return on your investment and of course Lucky Larry also managed to luckily avoid being at the World Trade Center on the morning of the attack due to a fortuitous doctor's appointment. But what a lot of people may not know is he was, he was such good friends with Benjamin Netanyahu that Netanyahu would call him every Sunday. Now, this is from the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, November 2001, quote, every Sunday afternoon, New York Times Netanyahu would call Silverstein. It made no difference what the subject was, where Netanyahu wa- was. He would always call, unquote. So uh, there's another Israeli connection. Another would be Zim Navigational, the only Israeli firm in the World Trade Center. I believe they'd been there for 30 years, and they broke their lease just before 9-11 and moved someplace else. Um, you also have um, the head of the 9-11 Commission was Philip Zelikow, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen. Why would you want to put somebody with sworn loyalty to another nation in front of, in charge of the 9-11 Commission. You've got, uh, well, we've 9- got
1: that all over the United States government anyway. We've got dual yeah. citizens all over
0: the place. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but especially in such a sensitive position. I know. Also, yeah. Bush's, Bush's, de- uh, uh, chairman of his defense policy board on 9-11, Richard Pearl, he was actually caught by the NSA spying for Israel back in 1970. Was never prosecuted. Then on 9-11, you had the Israeli instant messaging company, Odigo, their employees received a warning not to be in the World Trade Center two hours before the attack. You've got uh, P-TECH, uh, a, a software firm linked to Mossad, providing the FAA, the FBI, and the armed forces with sensitive software that they were using that morning. But here's one of my favorites. This is only one of my favorites. We're gonna get into this guy later. It's Danny Lewin. Now, Danny Lewin was uh, on Flight 11, And he was a former captain in the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Force, and he also was in their uh, Searet Matkal, which is their it's a special ops. It's like Navy SEALs. They specialized in counterterrorism, hostage rescue, and assassination. And here's something. This is from mainstream media. The guy could bench press 315 pounds, and was quote trained to kill terrorists with a pen or credit card or just with his bare hands unquote. Now. Okay, that might not be suspicious, With a but
1: credit card. Okay. With a now, credit card. Yeah, all right.
0: Uh, some people are killed by credit cards, but not, you know, physically. But, um, okay, in, <laughs> two th- in 2000, um, the year before the attacks, Danny had himself photographed an official portrait on a bench in front of two panels that looked like the Twin Towers. Now, here's the thing. you wearing a watch. If you uh, blow up the watch... Uh, you'll find that it's a swatch watch, and the model name was hijacker. And not only that, the second hand, the minute hand, and the hour hand were all on the 11, and the date was sent to the 11th, even though the picture was not taken on the 11th. Now, Rachel, you know what the odds are of all four time indicators being on the 11 at once? Very Of course, not. you know but i figured it out, okay? It's more than 20,000 to 1. He obviously deliberately stopped it on those numbers, Okay. Uh, if you multiply that times the odds of the watch being named the hijacker, that was the official model number. And by the way, you can see pictures of the watch and the Swatch watch ad for the uh, for this on uh, my blog post uh, "Unraveling the Mysteries of Flight 11," and I'll have it on my new post, which is upcoming. We're pre-recording this show t- tonight. Yeah. I'll, I'll mention it's uh, I'll, uh, so uh, I'll hopefully have my my new post up by then. But um, and remember this too, Rachel. On Flight 11 on 9-11, he was in row 9. Row 9 of Flight 11 on 9-11. And if you think all this is a coincidence, I'm sorry. Uh, You
1: said he was wearing a Swatch watch. Yes, and uh,
0: the model name was Hijacker. And Uh you uh, you can see the ad for the Hijacker uh, Swatch watch. That's the model he chose to wear with everything set on the 11 with a big smile on his face.
1: Because it's just like, who is this guy and why is he running our country? But he recently came out and he's wearing a very nice suit and he's wearing a blue Swatch watch. And I started looking around like, why, how the heck, why is he wearing a Swatch watch? And then I realized about two years before that, maybe three years before that, all these different investment people, it was like a a fad. Like, I guess not even three years, maybe 10 years. I don't know how long this fad's been going on, but they wear Swatch watches to their meetings I didn't know that. I'm not an investment type of person, but these well, like really high powered investment people, like a Goldman Sachs, they wear swatch watches to their meetings.
0: And when did that start? You know,
1: I I'll have to look it up. But I was on my Facebook page, and I, I was just astounded because the, it was just a weird image. You had this really expensive suit, and then you had this, and they you could tell. They, Pulled the sleeve away so you could see the blue mm. Swatch watch. It was a kind of a, mm. a Tiffany blue. It was a kind of a Tiffany blue.
0: Um, I guess we won't have a tie report uh, t- tonight, uh, your famous tie <laughs> report, but we've got <laughs> no, a watch it report.
1: Yeah, you know, the watches, but yeah, it was a Swatch watch thing. It was very interesting. I think it was maybe Bloomberg. I think it was Bloomberg Magazine did a piece uh-huh. about the Swatch watch thing with the huh.
0: Well, it must have some significance, you know, a, like a Masonic type of, uh, you know, um, it's like an indicator of some kind, I would guess. But, um, you know, I've only covered about 5% of the Israeli connections to 9-11. And I do want to recommend that people go to the WikiSpooks article, 9-11 Israel Did It, for the other 95%. But I, there's just one more remark in closing about this. If you're a police detective, mm-hmm. you're uh, trying to solve a murder uh, the, one of the first questions you will ask is, who benefited from the crime? Now, in the case of 9-11, did America benefit? No. I mean, we've, we've had uh, a police state developed here, and we've spent trillions of dollars on unnecessary wars and thousands of casualties. Did Muslims benefit? No. Uh, they did not benefit. They've, uh, they've seen uh, the Middle East turned into chaos from Egypt to Afghanistan to Iraq to Libya, now in Syria, now it's Yemen, next it may be Iran. They didn't benefit from 9-11. The only beneficiary was Israel, who sat back and watched America knock off their their enemies uh, one by one as they prepare for uh, what they call the Greater Israel-Yinan Plan, and the best article I've seen on that would be uh, Global Research uh, greater Israel, just, just, uh, type that into your search engine. But that's, uh, that's the who, along, of course, with Cheney and the American, uh, cooperation. But, um, I want to get to the how, but before I do, do you have any, any, any further comments? No,
1: no, I, I, it's just really hard for people to get their head around what you're saying about Israel, because they're supposed to be our
0: friends. <laughs> yeah, they're our friend on, when they attacked the US of Liberty, when they did the, when they tricked us into attacking uh, Libya in 1986 by planting a Trojan in Libya that made us think that uh, Libya did the La Belle discotheque bombing. And when they, they attacked the, uh, and tried to attack us in the uh, Lavon affair in 1954, always disguised as Arabs. That goes back to the, to the bombing of the King David hotel in 1946, when they went in as disguised as Arabs and blew up the hotel with British headquarters in it. You know, it's their modus operandi uh, pretend, you know, same thing with the Liberty, right? The, they flew an unmarked plane, so they would think that an Egyptian uh, Air Force uh, crew took down the liberty. But mm-hmm. um, but let's go on to the how. And you know I think a great way to open with a how, because I don't want to do all the talking, would be to throw it back to you. Because, Rachel, uh, uh, some of the people listening tonight will be people who I've tweeted this show to. And they won't be familiar with you. But you worked for one of America's top six defense contractors for years um in the years you know lead up to 911 and uh you had the absolutely unique experience of being shown the blueprints for building 7 and you were it was even indicated to you that there was some type of mechanism by which this building would collapse and I know that it was a casual conversation and I know that it, they didn't detail how it would collapse but why don't you tell folks about that I'm sorry are we still I can't on board
1: hear- yeah, I know. I can't hear you. It just, you totally cut out right there.
0: Okay, well, uh, uh, how much did you hear me say? You're cutting uh, out on me too. I, right? I think that, I don't think somebody doesn't like this, this conversation going on.
1: Let's just keep talking. You want to talk about building seven? Well, yeah, I did. I worked for a defense contract. I worked for L3 communications. Back then, that's what it was called, L3 communications. It's since changed its name. It's called L3. Systems or something like that. I don't know what it is now. I think they've changed their name. Um, but at that time, uh, we had—I was the marketing communications uh, specialist. They called it a specialist. Um, I don't—I really still don't really know what the heck that had to do with anything. But um, I was basically the go-to person to set up meetings with. People And I was in charge of uh, going through the RFPs, which are the request for proposals from the government. And uh, I was in charge of the out-of-house communications, which comm- meant any proposal going out. And I was in charge of this for five divisions at w- one point or another. It, o- all told, it was five divisions, five different divisions of this huge company. Um, well, I had to do the website. I had to do the press releases. So a lot of the stuff I did was... Uh, you know, it was anything that went out of the house. Well, there was a one time we had this meeting, and um, it was, we were, I guess we were trying to get, our little division was trying to get sold or traded. Um, and I was, to, I set up the meeting because I met with a man over at Drumpwhacket, which is the name of the governor's mansion in uh, New Jersey. And he was part of a company called Plan Graphics. And he indicated to me that they were going bankrupt. And at that point, I thought it would be really interesting and really great if we bought their company, added it to us and would make us look our little division look much more powerful like we had more stuff going on. So anyhow, there was this meeting where we were trying to sell our division off to somebody else or to another company, or to, I don't know what they were trying to do to tell you the truth. But we had um, big, important people there. And the reason why they were there with us is because we had previously responded to the request for proposal to put in the uh, command and control center for the emergency response center that um, Rudolph Giuliani wanted in that building. Of course, when we applied for that, it was supposed to be in a basement it, uh, we didn't get the contract. And when I was there in this meeting with these really important people, this guy from Plan Graphics, you know, we're just chatting. He, they brought the blueprints in. They brought all the, all different blueprints. I think he was trying to showcase all the buildings they had done these three dimensional models for. And, um, you know, I was like, Oh, what's this? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's the building we were going to put our community control center. And he's like, yeah. So and I was like, well, what does this thing, to, you know, what does this mean? You know, just being the dumb blonde kind of thing, making time before the big meeting. And he showed me with his finger. He ran it down. He said, blah, 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 blah. This is this this building was going to fall down. I, that's all I really know about Building 7 and that. Build, but I do know that they knew if it was going to fall down, it would collapse along a certain line in that building.
0: And uh by the way, uh, you cut out right after you said uh, the building was going to fall. But uh, I think we <laughs> c- probably sort of caught enough of that conversation. It's unfortunate. I, I know that uh, I've heard from our producer that my voice is cut out a little bit too. So I'm not quite sure uh, how much of our conversation is totally being heard by the audience. Uh, are you hearing me right now?
1: I hear you right now, just fine. Okay. I actually, I'm but, just going to keep talking. If I we'll, we'll we just keep going,
0: anything. and uh, just you know, keep talking. Yeah, we'll keep yeah. going. Okay, let's get on to. Uh, to the, uh, oh, by the way, I just want to tell people if they want to know, uh, uh, what Rachel's talking about, um, your your, all of your experiences in, uh, your, the significant experiences in the defense industry are in your series of novels called Security Through Absurdity. And, uh, you had to write it as a novel because, uh, to protect yourself, um, I know you had, uh, you know, a certain, uh, certain, confidential, uh, confidentiality understandings when you worked in the defense industry. And I realized as I read these books, it's not just you you're protecting. There are other people, too, that if you get in trouble, if uh, if, if their real names were known. But uh, people should check out your novels, Security Through Absurdity, for some of the things we'll be mentioning that you saw. Oh, thanks
1: for the plug, Barry. Oh, yeah, thanks, yeah. James. That was cool. Thank you.
0: Okay. All right. So let's talk about what brought down the towers. Now, this is the first of our three house. And, uh, of course, there's three major schools of thought in the uh, 9-11 movement. Uh, one is uh, nanothermite, which is advocated by architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. And another is directed energy weapons, which is advocated by Dr. Judy Wood. And uh, tonight I'll be talking about um, what I advocate, which is that it was, a, it was two small nuclear devices, two suitcase nukes in the basement. That brought them down this is the nuclear hypothesis which is a third hypothesis but I want to mention something Rachel which is that um, I know that you've expressed your respect to Dr. Judy Wood and uh, I hang out with uh, truthers in Boston and uh, I have friends in this group who are members of uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 truth who adv- they advocate nanothermite it doesn't get with the way of our friendship okay I know it's uh, a topic that is gets uh, bitterly disputed sometime but I'm just gonna just give you my what I call my top 10 reasons why well, I believe that the towers were new. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Because after this, is,
1: this is, forget about. We're no longer friends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Oh, yeah. You asked for it. Uh, you that. asked for it. Go All right. For it. Go um, for it. Okay. Um, so, uh, by the way, uh, this is de- in great detail in my uh, blog post at jamesperloff.com called to 9-11 and beyond. But here we go. My top ten reasons for uh, t- tonight's discussion. Number one. Okay, as we all know, uh, first responders are getting lots of cancer, but what cancer do they get uh, at a higher than normal rate more than any other cancer? And the answer is thyroid cancer. And why is that significant? Because thyroid cancer is a signature of an atomic bomb. An atomic bomb will give off um, something called iodine-131. It will collect in your thyroid, and this is why a lot of people actually keep, keep potassium iodide tablets on hand attacks your thyroid during a uh, nuclear attack. So that's uh, reason number one. Reason number two: the uh, U.S. Geological Survey examined the dust samples from the World Trade Center, and in those dust samples, they found uh, unexplicably high concentrations of the products of nuclear fission, uh, including uh, isotopes of uranium, strontium, barium, thorium, uh, beryllium, etc uh these concentrations could only be explained by nuclear event now the u.s geological survey stayed quiet about this they didn't call attention to it but it was um it was uh vetted by an author named william tahill in a 2006 book called ground zero the nuclear demolition of the world trade center that is uh was is the pioneering book on nuclear demolition and Still uh, much ignored and not noticed uh, in the alternative media. By the way, uh, the phrase ground zero up until 9-11 was only used for the site of a nuclear bomb. All right. Reason number three. Can you interrupt me anytime, Rachel. time, um, Rachel? Uh, the molten steel. There the was lots of molten steel uh, down in the basement and underneath the rubble. And the fires, as you know, kept burning for over three months. And um, extraordinary heat is yet another... Uh, signature of an atomic bomb you know at the center of an extrom- atomic explosion actually reaches millions of degrees and then as you go further out it's hundreds of thousands of degrees and thousands of degrees i was taught on a, a radio show with a new york city uh, host named tom kiley mm-hmm. and uh he was actually there uh on the day of 9-11 he used to be a consultant at the world trade center and he got caught up in that dust cloud he was his the people he was with are trying to get inside of a uh, revolving door. But he couldn't get in time. He said how warm that cloud was. This is a hot event. Um, so that's reason number three. And I just want to clarify: what we're talking about is um, the, the. And this is a, uh, I've come to this conclusion with cons- consultation with others who are very familiar with with nuclear weapons. That the we're talking about is is a. Uh, uh, suitcase nukes that have been placed in the very lowest point of the World Trade Center. And that would be the uh, service pits of Elevator 50. It, it, there's an Elevator 50 in both towers. It's the only elevator that went the full length of both uh, twin towers. And it's the only one whose service pits were carved into the bedrock beneath the World Trade Center. You know, there were six basement levels of the World Trade Center. It went very deep. So this is the deepest point. And uh, the uh, that this is the ideal location to launch a nuke because the bedrock will contain this the downward force and the sideward force of the blast and direct it uh, upwards. And we're going to be talking more about the significance of this later. But all right, reason number four why this was an atomic event was the explosive force. You know, uh, Rachel, there were chunks of steel that weighed multiple tons were thrown hundreds of feet. There was a chunk that was impaled in the American Express building across the street. And there was uh, there were chunks of weighing multiple times that flew 600 feet and knocked over the Winter Garden atrium building. Now that's not from a collapse, that is from an explosion. And what's the most powerful explosive known to man? It is an atomic bomb. You really don't have to go with an exotic weapon for this. The atomic bomb will do, um, will have that, that force. Reason number five, um, the inner contents of the towers were totally vaporized. Uh, no furniture was left. There was no, no toilet survived. No computers survived. Of course, no people survived. The only bodies they found were people who jumped before the event, before the explosion. And there were 10,000 filing cabinets in the World Trade Center. Of those, only one from the basement survived. So the insides were vaporized in and again, an atomic explosion can, can account for this. You know, it's not like a stick of dynamite as one boom and it's over. An atomic explosion is a is the, is the bomb that keeps on giving it keeps on exploding it keeps on exploding applying that powerful force. So it can account for the vaporization of the of the World Trade Center. Um, number 6 again interrupt me anytime. Uh the seismograph readings at the Columbia University's uh, observatory at Palisades, New York, which is about 20 miles to the north. There if you look at it ratio there's this incredible spike at the time that the the World Trade Center uh, buildings collapse. the two collapses. Um, uh, it shows the, the so-called plane hits as a little blip for that. But when the, the towers explode, the, the seismography just goes off the charts. It's an off-the-charts explosion. And, you know, just collapsing rubble is not going to do that, or even a series of little explosions. You were talking about one big boom, and that's another um, evidence in favor of nuclear. Uh,
1: can I ask a question? You said yeah. that the when the plane hit,
0: well, we're going to clarify that later. But you know, I'm talking about what what was supposed to be the plane or what was supposed to be the plane hitting. There is that was recorded at Palisades, New York. That was recorded, but it's a small blip compared to the uh, what happened when the towers went down. It's just a small blip in comparison. Mm-hmm. Did I answer any question you had, or no?
1: Well, yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. Keep going.
0: Now, this next one is something that a lot of people haven't heard of. Okay. A nuclear explosion ex- accounts for what happens to the other buildings of the World Trade Center complex. Now, as you probably know, building five, uh, was engulfed in flames and the fire department had to put it out. Building six was cratered out. I mean, the whole building was destroyed in- internally with a crater going all the way down to the basement. And building seven, the famous building seven, which obviously came down later that afternoon, five, about five o'clock with controlled demolition. Building seven was on fire. There were, there were big fires in building seven. And, uh, one of the best witnesses to that is, was Barry Jennings, uh, who was a emergency coordinator for the New York Housing Authority. He and a colleague were going down the steps of building seven, and he said there was a massive explosion from the bottom of the building. It tore out the stairs. So they had to retreat back upstairs, and they finally rescued by the fire department. It was incredibly hot in Building Seven, which, by the way, is, is the furthest one of all the buildings in the World Trade Center complex. It's the furthest one for the Twin Towers. So, how does the nuclear explosion account for this? Because the nuclear, uh, uh, the the World Trade Center was all interconnected underground, and uh, most people don't know this because they've suppressed the blueprints, but we know it from. Um, the, um, risk, uh, it's a property risk report prepared for Larry Silverstein's properties, okay, that there was this underground, uh, water drainage system as for, uh, 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 for, um, uh, what do they call it specifically? Um, it was, uh, Stormwater drainage system. I'm sorry. It was was three foot, three feet wide, and of course it went down to these these service pits of uh, elevated fifty. I was talking about when you have a when you want to drain out uh, floodwater. Okay, the floodwater will naturally flow down to the lowest point of any building, and so uh, not only would it be the ideal place to launch a nuke, which would follow the path of least resistance up that elevator shaft. Okay also follow the path of lethal resistance through these pipes that are leading out through this system that interconnects the entire world trade center underground and uh so what you're looking at in buildings five six and seven the other all these buildings were cratered out and blown out with flame with hot uh, explosions uh is uh the is the after is a secondary effect of the nuke because you know these buildings did not catch fire before the twin towers went down if they had uh, then cameras would have panned down. You have news now just saying, gee, we seem to have some, some fire in building seven. No, it was, it, it was not before the, uh, towers came down. It was a secondary effect. And I'll show you a, a proof of this in my article, uh, to 9-11 Beyond. You can actually see, uh, geysers shooting up from the ground that first there, first it's steam, then it's smoke. This is the, uh, underground water pipe that's just exploding from overpressure as the nuke is traveling through it. So that is, uh, I think that is the, and this, I didn't come to this conclusion on my own, I had to help with it, but this is, I think, the best explanation of what happened to buildings five, six, and seven. Secondary effect from a nuke going off in the basement of the World Trade Center. That's,
1: oh, okay, I, I I'd sort of, I buy that. However, I know since, you know, building seven didn't have a basement.
0: Yeah, but it was still connected to, a, for, it still had a, uh, to, uh, connected to the flooding system. Okay. Even, right. even without a basement, you can have a flood, and you lose right, right. flood. Okay. Okay. And, and this all accounts for the toasted cars and, and garages because they were also part of that system. Okay. Well, reason number eight is 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 probably not certainly not the strongest one, but you know there was this massive dust cloud. Everyone was fleeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to point out if you watch any nuke, uh, you know, a, a U.S. military nuke exploding, you'll find it creates a massive expanding dust cloud at ground level. It's not just a mushroom cloud. At ground level, you have this massive cloud. Now, I know that when a building just collapses, there'll be a dust cloud, but usually people can stand a couple blocks away in a standard demolition, and they're still safe. And I'll I'll grant that this is is an incredibly tall building, but if you compare that, that dust cloud seemed to have a life of its own. You know, it was just amazing uh, what people went through who were were running from it. And it does uh, compare to the um, image you see of a nuclear dust cloud. Well, reason number nine uh, actually comes from your own show. Believe it or not, your own show. Okay, uh, you had Susan Lindauer on, our mutual mm-hmm. friend Susan Lindauer. Uh, mm-hmm. You've been on a show, I've been on her show, she's been on your show for a two hour conversation. And uh, that's when I first picked up on, uh, I'd read it before, but I hadn't paid attention before. When she was in the CIA, and you know, she was the cousin of Andrew Card, who was uh, the chief of staff of George Bush, the CIA received advance warning of 9-11. Not a lot of specifics, but they told it would involve an attack on the World Trade Center. And, uh, one of the things she mentioned on your show was that it involved the destruction of the World Trade Center with a mini-nuke. And if you want to hear that, it's at the 29 minute mark of her interview with you. She talks about it for about a minute. Um, and I wanted to check that cause somebody challenged me and said, well, Susan Lindauer just probably just made this up now. So I went back to her book, which is called extreme prejudice published seven years ago. And she does talk about the nuke in there. And that references earlier courtroom testimony from years before that. So this is not something she just made up, but she says she, you know, she, she tried to warn, uh, the Justice Department of the tech and uh, John Ashcroft wouldn't pay attention, and she even sat outside in her car from Andrew Card's home hoping to warn him. And, you know, as you know, for her trouble, she was finally, as a whistleblower, she was thrown in prison, federal prison. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's my reason number nine. And for reason number ten, it's come from Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, in 1995, Netanyahu wrote a book called Fighting Terrorism. I'm going to quote it. Uh, such groups nullify the need to have air power or intercontinental missiles as delivery systems for an Islamic nuclear payload. They will be the delivery system. And the worst of such scenarios, the consequences could not be a car bomb, but a nuclear bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center, unquote. And he he italicized nuclear. So he's already telling you six years before 9-11, he expects a nuclear bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center. But it's not just that, Rachel. He also spoke with this after 9-11. I want to play a clip for you. And if I can't get the clip to play, I'm going to quote it myself. Okay, let me see if I can get you Benjamin Netanyahu talking to Tom Brokaw two days after 9-11. Let's see if I can get this clip going. Hold on a second here. We have here something far worse. You know, in 1995, I wrote a book called Fighting Terrorism. And I said that if we don't arrest the tide of Islamic uh, militant terrorism, we militant Islamic terrorism, then the next thing that will be is not a, a, a car bomb uh, in the uh, World Trade Center, uh, but uh, a nuclear bomb. Now, it wasn't a nuclear bomb. It was a 350-ton conventional bomb. But All right, Rachel. Uh, did you hear that okay? Yeah,
1: I heard it fine. I heard it perfect.
0: Okay. Okay, so what's significant here is he, he says, it's, uh, this is after 9-11, he says, first he talks about nuclear bomb and then Perhaps realizing he said too much, oh, oh, but it was a conventional bomb. Now, and he, he he even gives a specific yield, 350 tons. Now, that's very specific. Now, here's the thing, Rachel. This is after 9-11. He's talking to Tom Brokaw. All America has been told that the Twin Towers collapsed due to plane strikes, right? But mm-hmm. Netanyahu was saying right on there it was a bomb. And he knows the precise tonnage of the bomb, 350 tons. Tom Brokaw should have said, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you seeing a bomb take down the World Trade Center? But this is afterwards, and he's letting it slip. Mm-hmm. So that's Benjamin Netanyahu, and that is my proof. I won't call it proof. It's, it's evidence number 10 that points towards a nuclear weapon in mm-hmm. the um, World Trade Center. Uh, so um,
1: that, the nuclear part doesn't really account for the building just collapsing on its own footprint.
0: Well, what happened, I believe, Rachel, um, with with a nuke in the bedrock uh, at the lowest point of the World Trade Center, it would follow the path of least resistance up the the elevator shaft of um, elevator fifty, and uh, it would uh, reach that point before it reached the edges of the World Trade Center uh, building, the the periphery of the building, uh, because it's got to cut through all those steel columns. Okay, but the first thing it's going to do is hit the Go right through the empty space of the elevator shaft and start going, uh, billowing out the um, the, the pl- we'll call the plane holes, the 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 holes that are already smoking. Okay, and then uh, that as it starts to go through, it's cutting through. It's it, it, the elevator fifty in the center. It's gradually expanding. It's destroying those uh, those uh, steel columns. And when most of the steel columns have gone, there's nothing to support the top of the building anymore. So the top of the building just is, is almost falling through empty space at that point, so it does go down. Okay, there is that. Uh, oh, that so, so, uh, so there
1: was down. no controlled demolition in your in this theory. There's no.
0: Control. Oh, oh no! I believe there are definitely uh, planted explosives on the level of, of what we call the plant strikes. No question about it. And I believe that probably included thermite, which they found evidence for. But I think that the explosion itself that destroyed the, the World Trade Center uh, was uh, a nuclear event.
1: Oh, okay, all right. So we got the the suitcase bomb. And then we've got controlled demolition, like, somehow set up in the building beforehand.
0: Uh, yeah, but I don't think the controlled demolition took it down. I think that the, the, the explosives that were planted, you've heard of the Israeli art students that cut their way to the, the, uh, outside of the building. It's incredible. Yeah,
1: what was it, uh, honestly, what was the deal with that?
0: I think they're creating a, the explosives were a great way to call the plane hole. Um, but we'll get, okay. we're going to get into that okay. next. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, by the way, there's one other thing. Uh, people, the common objection to this is, okay, so where are the Geiger counter readings? And you actually took a Geiger yeah, counter down. Yeah, I this. Went you, down, yes, tell, tell I us went about that. I went down.
1: I went down to the um, World Trade Center when they were starting to um, build the new tower that's there now. It was, mm-hmm. you know, everything was just kind of cleared away at that point. And I went down with a Geiger counter. A friend of mine had a Geiger counter, and we went down together. And it came back even less than a banana. I was like how is that even possible? And the guy that was with me with this Geiger counter, he's like, oh, that's giving you less than a banana. I was like, what does that mean? He goes, bananas emit radiation off of them, healthy bananas, and you buy them, you eat them. He goes, right now, it's less than a banana right here.
0: And what year was that?
1: That was, I guess, one year later when they had cleared away and they were starting to – build. we knew they were going to start building the new tower. In fact, they were – we went to go look at the different um, mock-ups the different architects had done for the contest. That's what we were doing that day.
0: Okay, so let me talk about why uh, we don't get the Gage counter readings uh, on these two nukes. And the reason is, um, you know, there's different types of nuclear bombs. You know, the uh, uh, Hiroshima bomb and the Nagasaki bomb uh, cause horrible radiation effects. But uh, nuclear bombs are... Uh, made of a combination of fission and fusion. Fission is a breaking apart of atomic particles. It gives off huge amounts of radiation. Fusion is fusing together atomic parts. It gives off very little radiation. So if, I, if you get a high fusion bomb, it's going to have a, a minimal radiation. Now, during the Cold War, the United States started to develop high fusion bombs. Now, these have a minimum of fission, a minimum of radiation. They call them battlefield nukes because you're in a battlefield situation ratio... You don't want to use a bomb that's got lots of radiation. It's going to affect your own troops, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, we did, uh, in fact, Dr. Edward Telvis said he hoped to develop a completely clean nuke that would have no radiation at all. So what kind of uh, of nukes would Israel use? Now, uh, by the way, I, I meant to mention that a suitcase nuke is so small you can carry it in a backpack and very easy to plant. Um, and so, if you've got, you know, you given permission by uh, Larry Silverstein, very easy just to go down to the basement and put him there, okay? But uh, what kind of uh, nukes would Israel have? Well, obviously, it doesn't want high radiation bombs because if it gets into a war with its neighbors, it doesn't want radiation blowing back to to Tel Aviv. Um, so we don't know because it's a state secret. But obviously, they would emphasize high fusion bombs, very low radiation. And that's clearly what they would have used on 9-11. But they don't want to, not, uh, you know, bump off the friends at Goldman Sachs. They're just trying to scare America into a war. Um, but there are three other factors I should mention. Um, uh, number one, the U.S. Uh, did tests. They found when a bomb, an atomic bomb is blown up in a shaft, which this would be the equivalent of a shaft, it gives off a, a little radiation compared to a bomb that's exploded at ground level. Number two, you know, Hurricane Aaron, which Judy Wood talks about, yeah. The hurricane Erin was this really incredibly weird hurricane. It was on a, a direct path from the Caribbean to New York. It was off the coast of New York on 9-11. And then after 9-11, it, it, hook, it hooked a UE, It did a Yui and it went off and went up to Greenland. Now she interprets that as this is where um, the directed energy weapons got their, their um, energy. But there's another interpretation, which is that a low-pressure system like a hurricane will suck the air out of the neighboring higher-pressure areas. And so any radiation in New York City's atmosphere would have been pulled out to sea and then brought – away from the area by Hurricane Aaron. That's among the reasons we're giving here for the low radiation. Another is that even though 9-11 was a sunny day, for the next several days, it rained in New York City, and that would reduce the radiation in the atmosphere. The main reason, though, uh, there would be low radiation ratio is simply there was a low radiation bomb, a strategic battlefield tactical nuke.
1: Hmm. Okay. All right. Now, would there be, and I don't know, I would there be like a signature for this type of bomb? Like, I don't know, I've heard people that go do forensics at different um, war sites. They know exactly what type of bomb and what country it comes from. Would there oh, be some sort uh, of... I don't think there'd
0: be any material left, like the casing would have all been destroyed. So I don't think there'd be anything with a number on it or something you could trace it back, especially on, under that rubble. But I, I consider the signatures to be things like the thyroid cancer, the, the, uh, the nuclear fission products and the dust samples. That would be forensic evidence. Uh, in the, in the, uh, molten steel, I think those are all signatures of, uh, an atomic event.
1: Okay. Alright, and so, but you don't think that Judy Wood's, um directed energy weapon is, is feasible? You think that's kind of a getting Well, I, I don't
0: think we need to resort to that. I think that a nuclear bomb can do everything that we saw that day. Um, okay. I think it, it okay. accounts for all the phenomena. Alright. And it's known, I mean, it's a known quantum uh, event event, directed at energy. We just haven't observed them. Um, to to know what they do, um, but uh, we've we've observed atomic bombs many times. So I, I think, especially uh, what do you think Israel's got in its arsenal? Um, you know, satellite-based weapons or or nukes? I think if we're if we're thinking nu- Israel did this, I think we're talking nukes.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: And uh, well, if we're done with that topic, I want to talk next about what hit the towers because that's another uh, very uh, subject of great debate and interest in the uh, in the 9/11 truth movement. And I think we have about seven minutes here before we hit a break. Yeah. yeah
1: you, okay. You're Keeping your eye on the
0: clock. Go ahead. Keep going. Okay. All right. So, Oh, oh but actually, I want to start again with you, Rachel, because Thanks. you, uh, your defense company, uh, actually built the camera that all the networks were using. That was on that helicopter, that chopper that was, uh, filming, uh, the building before they, before, before they collapsed. So why don't you talk yeah. about that?
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No, um, that was, that was just a weirdo thing. they, I remember on September 11th, that very day, um, we got a communication that we were supposed to kind of hype up that that was our camera. Easy. Like they they put it on satellites and they can see literally like me drinking. Uh, what type of coffee do I have? Starbucks or do I have Dunkin' Donuts? They can tell <laughs> from space. That's the type of um, you know resolution these things get. But anyhow, we we had one of our cameras on this helicopter fly, flying around and it was being um sent to abc7 in new york and that was the footage that was being used and blasted out to all the um the, all the stations yeah uh,
0: by the way i i only heard the second half of what you said um um we will learn over the break yeah. uh, <laughs> if, if the got <laughs> got it no.
1: okay well, yeah. Where, yeah, so that was um, – it. Was the company's, the company that made that camper is called Westcam. It was a division of L3 Communications, Westcam. And, and – go ahead.
0: Uh, and I uh, understand also that unknown to most people there was actually a delay in the uh, – the what people were looking at. Uh, you said it was like seven seconds?
1: Yeah, there's definitely a seven-second delay. And Yeah, I know. So is James. This is a tough interview. No, yeah, I just keep talking.
0: <laughs> okay, um, anyway, uh, okay, Rachel, uh, anyway, uh, this is a good plug for your book, because if people want to find out the details they missed, uh, when you broke up, they have, need to buy your book, cause Security Through Absurdity, to find out all these, uh, details about your experiences in the defense industry. But, um, okay, oh, okay, so I'm gonna, uh, go on with what hit the towers, uh, at least okay. my belief. Yeah. And, uh, we got a few
1: uh, minutes left, just a few. You want to just give us some teasers because we're um, going to go to. Break we'll we'll to just
0: start back. and then we will pick up uh, after the break. Okay. Um okay. First of all, I, I, you know uh, when I first heard the "no planes hitting the towers" theory, I, you know, my reaction was Rachel. I thought, "Oh, you dummies! You know, you, you're you're you're, you're, you're going to introduce cognitive dissonance. You're going to make us all look ridiculous. Don't you know this is just to make us look all ridiculous? No, no planes hit the towers. Now, um, let me just t- tell you how I evolved on this. Um, I started paying attention to because some people I respected uh, who were saying this, and uh, I started thinking. I said, "You know, Shanksville. It, there's a there's a 10 foot deep crater, about 20 feet wide. It's it was smoking, and there's no bodies. It doesn't look like a regular plane wreck. You know, look at MH three seventeen or any of these other plane wrecks. There's wreckage and bodies all over the place. What happened at Shanksville? I mean, it, it look, doesn't look like there was a plane there. And then, what about the Pentagon? Um, we have uh uh you know, again, the dearth of uh, evidence, In fact, speaking of dearth, let me quote a Lieutenant Colonel uh Karen Katowski, Ph.D., U.S. Air Force retired, who was at the Pentagon that day. You must have heard of her ratio. Um, mm-hmm. Quote, there was a dearth of visible debris on the relatively unmarked Pentagon lawn where I stood only minutes after the impact. Beyond this strange absence of airliner debris, there was no sign of the kind of damage to the Pentagon structure one would expect from the impact of a large airliner. This visible evidence or lack thereof may also have been apparent to the Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, who in an unfortunate slip of the tongue referred to the aircraft that slammed into the Pentagon as a missile, unquote. We're mm-hmm. almost up to our break. Um, but if you've seen the footage of April Gallup, who worked in the Pentagon, she walked out with other employees right through that hole before the collapse. She saw no bodies, no, uh, airplane debris, no cushions, no luggage, nothing that would indicate an airliner had come through there. And Major General Avro Stubblebine, I'm sure you've seen him, former head of U.S. Army Intelligence says, where was the plane? He thinks the whole, the, the plane cannot have disappeared in the hole. He thinks it was a missile. Uh, where is the, the where is the impact of the engines on the side, side of the uh, Pentagon? You don't see any indication that a plane hit it. Um, so this started me looking at, okay, if no plane at the Pentagon or or, uh, Shanksville, is it possible there was no plane at the World Trade Center? And we'll get into that, I think, on the other side of the break.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, the thing about the Pentagon always, always blew my mind because, come on, man, it's the Pentagon. That <laughs> yeah. thing has satellites pointed at it from every, every other nation has, people are watching that thing. We're watching that thing. And there's, Everybody, everybody's mind was blown. That was the thing that blew everybody's mind on 9/11, where I was working for the defense contractor. It's one thing to hit the World Trade Center; it's big, it's just sitting there, mm-hmm. it's not, not protected by anything. It's another thing altogether to hit the darn Pentagon.
0: Exactly. Well, we're going to talk about uh, uh, major evidences why. I'm not going to rule out that something like a plane hit the World Trade Center, but we're going to rule out flights 11 and 175.
1: Excellent. Okay, everybody. We're going to take a break. Please come back with us. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for coming back for the second hour of Shadow Citizen. I can't believe we just made it through that first hour with James Perloff. He gave us an overview of his new newest idea, what happened on 9-11. And we're going to continue because he left us with, the pentagon he was talking last hour about the towers and he gave the top 10 reasons why he thought israel with in conjunction with our own government was behind the the 9-11 attack but we just left off with the pentagon and i want to come back to that james fill us in with what you were talking about with the pentagon
0: okay actually i was just transitioning from the pentagon we were talking about uh the um, how I'd heard the no planes theory, and I thought that's ridiculous. But then when I looked at the Shanksville evidence and the Pentagon evidence, not much evidence for a plane there. And so I said, well, what about if they use the same approach on all four targets? Is it possible there were no planes? And uh, what I was saying was uh, there's uh, no way that 11 and 175 hit the towers. And let's talk about why that is. It's a matter of speed, accuracy. And um, the way they went into the buildings, uh, uh, flight 175 was traveling at 590 miles per hour. And the max flying speed for 767, I believe, is 424. So it's 170 miles over its max flying speed. Now, you could argue that, you know, up at altitude where the atmosphere is thinner, it can reach high speeds. And if it dove down, maybe it still maintained that speed. Uh, but here's the problem. Uh, Pilots for 9-11 Truth has done a fantastic short video. It's called, you can see it on YouTube, it's called Airplane Controllability. And what they point out, Rachel, is that at 590 miles an hour, the wings are going to almost shear off. They're, you run into what they call G-forces. The, the plane will be rocking back and forth. You can't control it uh, at that speed. And they actually have a, a clip where several Pilots tried to hit the World Trade Center at those speeds on a, on a, a simulator. None of them could do it. Rachel. And these are guys with thousands of hours of experience flying Boeings. And we're supposed to believe that the Arab hijackers got into a, the very first time ever got into a Boeing cockpit. These guys who couldn't control a twin engine Cessna at 65 miles an hour. They both scored bullseyes at these impossible, uncontrollable speeds. And There's a point I want to make about this, Rachel, which is that everything seemed to go perfectly on 9-11. Both planes hit a bullseye. But think for a moment, supposing they didn't hit a bullseye, supposing Flight 175 had come down and it just missed, you know, and the wing hit the building, right? What would happen, Rachel? What would happen is that 175 would have crashed somewhere else in New York City, but there's no way they could demolish the, the building if all they got was a little... A slice from a wing, right, mm-hmm. uh, the whole plane would have fallen apart. They had to be absolutely sure that the, both planes hit a bullseye, and there's no way at those speeds, when, if experienced Boeing pilots can't do it, there's no way a pilot could guarantee uh, a dead-on hit uh and of course if they the the plane missed the uh, they can't collapse a building and the whole 911 phenomena falls apart so they had a, a system in place the other thing that discredits the idea that 11 and 175 the two flights american 11 and united 175 hit the buildings is the image uh you see, the images you see of 175 and you can see it on youtube when it goes into the building the bu- the plane vanishes into the building it's absurd the tail vanishes in the building, the wings. Now those are made of aluminum. They're fragile. They would have broken off. They would have shorn off. There's no way that they could cut through the 14 inch steel columns of the, tw- of the, of the twin towers. This can't be done. If that was the case, uh, we would make our artillery shields out of aluminum instead of steel. In fact, uh, there's a, uh, there's an analyst named Dmitry Kalizov. He made a pretty good point and he's a nuclear advocate. Uh, he said that during World War II, uh, and your World War II buffs will know this, the, the Soviets had a tough tank. It's called the T-34, and it was impervious to German ar- artillery shells. Yet its steel was only two inches thick. Now, if two inches of steel can resist uh, a steel artillery shell, which is traveling much faster than those airliners, how could these fragile aluminum wings cut through them? They can't do it. You're looking at a physical impossibility, when you see this you cut me off any time by the way
1: no go right so, ahead so
0: um, so some people uh said well you know what these must have been computer generated graphics you know after the fact yeah i heard people, about that i yeah, don't
1: know if that, people, i don't people, know if that's true but keep going
0: uh, i think that is not true and here's why there's a really excellent video on youtube i linked to it from my uh from my web articles uh by richard hall and he did tremendous work he actually produced a a scale model of New York City on his computer with all the landmarks. And then he took the 26 best videos of flight 175 going into the south tower. And from all different angles, and he established where the cameras were, and then he mapped out the route of those those uh impact objects that were photographed. All 26 followed the precise same trajectory. Now, if this is just some guy who the next day made up a computer image, there's no way Plus the fact, of course, that all those people in live, in real time, watched something that looked like a plane go into the World Trade Center. So, so the, the, the lesson of uh, Richard D. Hall's film, Racial is that there was a real object that followed a trajectory and did hit the World Trade Center. So the question is, what was, what was it? Because we know it couldn't have been the airliners for the reason we just gave, the impossible physics of, uh, of aluminum floating right into the building and disappearing, and the impossible controllability of the planes at those speeds. So, uh, the first option, um, right. okay. So let me stop. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, okay. First option is a missile, and um, you might remember the earlier quote from the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Katowski on Rumsfeld saying a missile <laughs> went into the Pentagon. Okay, a missile solves these problems of speed, of accuracy, and of penetration, uh, because a missile can travel at those speeds. It will. It doesn't have the G forces against it. It's it can be precisely guided and unlike an uh, airplane whose plastic nose gets punched in by birds, if you've ever seen photographs of those, uh, the, the nose cones being punched in by hitting birds, okay, yeah. a missile is hardened for penetration. It's designed for penetration. But that of course raises the all important question, okay, so how, why did people see what looked like a plane? And uh, the best answer for that, if these were missiles, would be this. The, the Air Force developed what is called an airborne holographic projector. And although they've taken it down from their Air Force website, people captured it on a screenshot, and it shows a airplane projecting the image of another airplane, which is complete fake. It's just a hologram to deceive an anti-aircraft gunner. And let me quote the Air Force's own website, okay? Quote, The holographic projector displays a three-dimensional visual image in a desired location, The projector can be used for psychological operations and strategic perception and management. It is also useful for optical deception and cloaking, providing a momentary distraction when engaging an unsophisticated adversary. Uh, Then it says capabilities, precision projection of 3D visual images into selected area, support PSYOP and strategic deception management, provides deception and cloaking against optical sensors, unquote. Now, if people don't believe in, in holograms, Rachel, uh, Hollywood, uh, Las Vegas, they'll put Elvis Presley on stage with a hologram, and it looks just like the real Elvis. It's three-dimensional, and it's, it looks so real, you think it's the real Elvis. But, of course, he's been dead for years. Uh, but if Hollywood can do that and Las Vegas can do it, imagine what a military budget can do. And um, I'm sorry, did you want to interject something here? Um, I'll continue. Um, the uh, People might ask, well, could Israel do that? It, it, and,
1: it was a missile, but it was cloaked as a plane.
0: Right. Now, people might ask, can Israel do that? So let me quote the declassified Defense Department paper from 1987, Critical Technical Assessment of Israel. Uh, it says that the Israeli firm L Op, that's E-L hyphen O-P, was already developing holographic technology with, quote, stealth applications. That is 14 years before 9-11. But here's what really creeps me out, okay? Mm -hmm. In 1999, Israel uh, commissioned her first dolphin-class submarines. Now, Up until 1999, Israel only had uh, these old subs from the 70s. But in 1999 it released these new subs into the waters that could launch cruise missiles. And in the year 2000, the U.S. Navy observed these uh, Israeli submarines launch, doing missile launch tests. So the Israelis absolutely had the capability to launch a cruise missile in 2001. And the timing, uh, it keeps me up. Remember earlier I was saying that I didn't believe it was our own military attacking us, I believe it was Israeli military. This uh, would clarify how they uh, could have done it um, would be uh, cruise missiles. And by the way, uh, from uh conversa- conversation we had with our producer over the break, I should probably mention I'm talking about Israel. A lot of people think that if you, if you criticize Israel, Israel, you're anti-Semitic. I just want to mention I'm half Jewish. The name Perlov is an Americanization of Perlovsky, my father's uh, parents came from uh, were Russian Jews came to America in 1904. So I'm not speaking out of anti-Semitism. We'll just just to clarify that. OK. All right. Now, um, again, cut me off at any point. Um, I believe the Israeli art students were up there uh, who cut their way to the edge of the World Trade Center in order to plant explosives. I do believe there were planted explosives in the World Trade Center, including thermite, the incendiary thermite uh, to create. So when the missile. If it was a missile came in contact with it, then it would have detonated those planted explosives and created that perfect plane cutout. Okay. But the other possibility and, um, is a drone. And this is uh, uh, advocated by Chris Bolin, who I met uh, last year. I asked him, I said, Chris, I said, uh, I don't have a, I'm not dogmatic about it, but I've heard this no plane theory. And what's your opinion? I don't want to put you on the spot. And he said that he believed that uh, it would not be a, uh, a missile. I'm sorry. He said it would not be a hologram. Because if you look at the underside of, of um, flight 175 in the images, you can see what looks like a missile. And, um, Uh, So he felt it was a drone, and I I thanked him very much. I didn't push the point, but I I felt, okay, but how does a drone fly through steel? And my conclusion is that perhaps what we're looking at is a real missile on the underside of 175 projecting uh, aircraft above it. But again, just to give credit to the drone hypothesis, uh, they say they did find some aircraft parts uh, in the World Trade Center vicinity. Of course, they also found... Unburned passports, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, also, uh, there's a, there's an old plan. You, I'm sure you heard of it. Operation Northwoods, which right. was an old Pentagon plan to set, substitute drones for real airplanes, uh, to justify an attack on Cuba. And, uh, if in fact drones were sent up into the, air ratio, uh, it's interesting that there's a very strange coincidence that happened with flights 11 and 175 out of Boston. They actually almost collided. They crossed each other's path and when they did that they were over or just about over um, Stewart Air Force Base, which would have been the ideal time to send up drones into the air that would tag along after the planes. So uh I I there's there, there's issues with the holographic uh theory I acknowledge, but I also have issues with the drone theory. People have said, well, you can see that uh, something lights up when that uh plane when you could put it in slow mo, you can see that something lights up and they said that the, the it's launching the missile at the last second. But to me, Rachel, uh, I don't see how a, a missile can gain the necessary acceleration to move ahead of the plane to 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 clear a path for the drone to go into the you know it's it's just at the, in a split second, and there's no exhaust fumes coming from the back of that missile. So I, I I'm willing to go either way. I know that Phil McConnell, who's a old Air Force guy who uh, is on uh, 9/11. Shows quite a bit, says he believes they were drones, So, and, and the people in It for 9-11 truth think it was drones. So I'll, I, I could go either way on this one, but I, I will say it was not Flight 11 or Flight 175. And by the way, Rachel, you asked me a question um, privately the other day. Are you still there? I'm still here. Okay. You, you asked, uh, and you kind of brought this up at Tonight Show, how did the Pentagon, with all its military defenses, get attacked successfully? How could it possibly let that happen? And I was—I've I, been trying to research this drone hypothesis. So a couple of days ago, I was listening to a show that uh, Phil McConnell did, this old Air Force guy. And Here's how he explained it. I think it's pretty credible, Rachel. It's those military exercises on 9/11. You know, Kevin Barrett uh, was a uh, well-known uh, alt media guy. I was on his show, and he said that Chip Burlingame, who was the pilot on Flight 11, had done been in a military exercise with a fake attack the year before. And what uh, what McConnell says, Rachel, is that on 9-11, their guard was down because they were anticipating military drill, false attack on the Pentagon. What they didn't know was that when Flight 11 came in, he says there was a drone right on its tail. And when Flight 11 flew over the Pentagon, that's when the drone went down, split second, banged into the Pentagon. They thought they were on a drill. But of course, I asked the question, Surely at this point, with both twin towers having been hit, they would have called off any drills and been on full alert. But that's his explanation, and perhaps it, it at least lends credibility to why the Pentagon's guard was down, because they thought they were in, uh, they were, the plane approaching was part of a, those multiple, you know, what do they call it, the vigilant guardian, all those military exercises that were going on that day. Okay.
1: I don't
0: believe, yeah, I don't buy that, but anyhow, go ahead. Okay. So, I don't <laughs> necessarily buy that, it either, that part, but like, I thought it might speak to your question. That. Okay. All right. So yeah. now, okay. So we've kind of addressed what brought the towers down and, uh, what hit the towers. So now I want to talk about what happened to the planes and passengers. And Rachel, I have totally gone in a different direction. You know, when we are first going to do this show, I was going to talk about things like the head of security for American Airlines that day was Larry Wansley, former FBI agent. And how he he called up his his friend. The first thing he did was call his friend Danny Deffenbaugh of the FBI, who was also in charge of the world of the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. And supposedly, the FBI first knew about the hijacking at 9 a.m. And I was gonna, uh, I was going to ask, well, how then is it that uh, Vanessa Minter at Air American Airlines Reservations, who took the first phone call from a frightened flight attendant Betty Ong says she took that call at 8.25, and at 8.30, an FBI agent took her off the phone. How, how is it that the FBI learned of this at 9 o'clock a.m., according to the uh, 9-11 Commission? But uh, Vanessa Minter says the FBI was already in her office at 8.30. But you know what, Rachel, we're going to leave that discussion aside because I've come to a startling conclusion about the planes, and I want to get into that. I discussed this with you privately before we had this show a, a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we go. Uh, here's what we commonly say in alt media, in the 9-11 movement. We say, okay, uh, about half the hijackers later turned up alive. There's alleged Arab hijackers, right? We know that they turned up alive, and this was even in the European press just a few days after 9-11, that they were, there was Saudi guys were saying, you know, that's me, that's my ID, but I was not on those planes, I'm still alive, look at me. We know about half those guys were alive, and we also know that they did not have the ability to pilot a Boeing. And so the truth movement has gone in this direction. We say, okay, if there were no hijackers on that plane, there was no hijacking. They must have been electronically hijacked. And so now we go down the road of, okay, the phone calls were faked. And so the question becomes, if the phone calls were faked, what happened to the people on the planes? And we say, well, there were no people on the planes, or they were calling from the ground, but the people disappeared. So what happened to the people? And we say, OK, well, they were, you know, they paid off big money and they were sent to Tahiti or something with new identities. But my question is, if they went to offer new identities, what if somebody had remorse and they said, I didn't know that they're going to destroy thousands of people, the World Trade Center. No, they had to kill those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I hear is we've heard is, and I've looked at this stuff seriously, is that it was voice morphing technology. The CIA agents made those phone calls from the airplanes people's homes and they morph their voices using voice prints but you know some of the people had bought their ticket the day before and so how did the how did the cia know who to who to morph you know what i'm saying racial mm-hmm. um and i've i've come across a completely different i'm going to go in a completely different direction on this i'm going to say that there were hijackers on those planes real hijackers on those planes but they were not arabs as we were told that was all bs that came from. Mohammed Atta's luggage not making it onto Flight 11 and had all the names of the hijackers on it. And that's how the FBI said they got their info. And even when it uh, turned out those half those guys were alive, the FBI did not investigate who they were. The 9-11 Commission did not investigate who they were. I say the hijackers were on the plane they were uh, planting evidence, as you know, in the days leading up to 9-11. They were going to bars, leaving a Koran at the bar, leaving their IDs at the bar. They left a Koran and a flight training manual in a car at Logan Airport, et cetera, et cetera. I believe that they, uh, the people on 9-11, the real hijackers, were uh, part of Danny Lewin's team. I believe they were Israeli special ops, the equivalent of our Navy SEALs. I believe that they were uh, probably the Sayeret Matcal, all of them, They'd gotten on the plane using the Arab IDs, but they were all special ops. And unlike the Arab, Hany Hanjur and these Arabs, these guys knew Boeing's inside out. And how would that be, Rachel? Because they are from Israel and Israel, their, uh, air company is El, am sorry, it's El Al, and their fleet is loaded, was loaded with Boeing 757s and Boeing 767s. These guys had Countless hours at the controls of Boeing's flying them. And they probably had a Boeing 767 in a hangar. And they probably drilled this hijacking in this cockpit seizure again and again. Okay, boys, 10 seconds, not bad. Let's see if we can get it down to 9 seconds. Okay, um, Now this is
1: the guy, this is the guy that could kill people with a,
0: a credit with card. With a credit card, a pen, or his bare hands. Okay, okay. and I believe they all, probably all of them could. Now, one of the questions is, how do they get in the cockpit so fast? Because, you know, uh, Rachel, I've checked this out. You know, my co-producer on the movie I, I scripted called Shattering, uh, Mary Ellen Moore, she was a career le- uh, flight attendant. And in 2001, she's given me the, the – I've confirmed everything with her. By 2001, whenever an airplane took off, the cockpit was locked, all right? It was always locked. And this is because of past hijackings. It was just a safety precaution. But uh, so, if the cockpit is locked, how do the Israeli ops get into it? Because they got a key, okay. In every airline, uh, in case it was an emergency, they had a key. The flight attendants had a key. Um, because what if something really weird happened, like both both uh, pilots had a heart attack? You got to be able to get into that cockpit. So they all had a key in a hidden place. But the the guys on um, with the special ops I'm talking about the um, the uh, um, Sayre and Matcal. they had their own key already with them. They would have gotten their keys from their uh, from uh ll from their Boeing's. Okay, they already had their key on them. So how did they get into the, the cockpit so fast? Very easy. Okay, you, uh, you wait till the uh, hostess is distracted, the stewardess, the flight attendant is distracted, and probably there is they create a distraction. Uh, Danny Lewin says, "Oh, um, Miss, uh, I just spilled my coffee." Um, Could you help me clean it up? So while she's distracted, we know that two guys were sitting in the second row of first class. They go right up to the cockpit. They got their key. They're in in no time, and those pilots are instantly killed. At that point, the hijackers are into the cockpit. They lock the door behind them, and one guy stands guard outside, and that happened on each aircraft. They had this down to They're not taking any chances, Rachel. They're not going to try and uh, slam their way through a locked door. They got a key. And you know, I, I heard that. Oh well, you know, they 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 held a a box cutter to a stewardess's throat, and they said, "Open the door, or the broad gets it." No, no, no. They're, what if the what if the pilot says, "No, I don't care what you do." No, they got in because they had a key. All right. And it's true that stewardesses were stabbed because they tried to stop them from getting in on a couple of those planes. But if you look at the phone calls from 175, the pilots were dead, were killed immediately. And um, I'm going to call it now Rachel. These are not fake phone calls. These are not crisis actors. Uh, these are real phone calls and real hijackers, but they're not Arabs. They're Israeli special ops. And um, I'm going to just blew my mind. OK, let me give you a quote. This is from the London Telegraph, September the 21st, 2001. Quote, accounts from the other doomed planes indicate the hijackers encouraged people to call their families and tell them what was happening. Unquote. That is mind blowing, Rachel. The hijackers told people to call to let them know what's happening, Rachel. They're establishing the narrative. They want everyone to know that this plane has been hijacked by Muslim terrorists. Do you understand? But they are not uh, uh, amateur Arabs. They are Israeli professionals. Why in the world would they tell people uh, on this uh, these killers? Tell everybody, call your families and tell them what's happening. These guys want to establish a narrative. Why don't they patrol the aisles, guarding and watching the the, the, the passengers? Because they wanted to feel free to pick up those earphones and call people at home and tell them what's going on. They want the narrative established. You got it? This is yeah, the, got it. Totally changed right. all about the mind. narrative. It's literally
1: now, all about the narrative. And they've been right. doing this to us over and over and over with these different events in this country, right. all over the world right now, quite frankly but it's all about the narrative. Go ahead, exactly. continue on.
0: Exactly. So for me, Rachel, I'm done with the idea that these were fake phone calls, crisis actors pretending they, they paid the stewardesses a million dollars to fake a phone call or the CIA used voice morphing technology. I'm done with that. These were real people reacting to a real hijacking but it's been done by Israeli special ops, not by amateur five foot. If you look at it, the size of these Arabs with IDs, they're like five foot two, 110 pounds. They're not big guys like Danny Lewin who could bench press 315 pounds. I was on Kevin Bird's show. We we're joking. Danny Lewin was so big and strong, he, he could bench press three of those Arab hijackers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Definitely.
0: But <laughs> okay. here's
1: the question, James. Well, here's the question. What happened to people that...
0: Okay. Uh, you cut out, but I heard your question, um, what happened to the people? Um, okay, um, you're cutting out of me? Okay. Um, what happened to the people? And that's exactly where I'm going to go next. Okay, after the uh, missiles or drones hit the targets, it was necessary to silence these people, and um, they had to be killed. And, and let's talk about where they took the planes and what they do with the passengers. There's a lot of ways to kill the people. I don't think they were machine gunned or something. I think that they were gassed, uh, uh, with poison gas. Now, Phil McConnell says there's a way to do it from the cockpit where you put a poison into the entire, um, uh, ventilation system of the aircraft. And he said it would kill people in 1.5 seconds. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that according to reports from the, um, uh, um, the calls, the hijackers displayed a bomb and the hijacker outside the cockpit had something strapped to his waist that he said it was a bomb. I don't think it's a prop ratio. I think it's probably a poison gas canister. You know, cyanide gas will render you unconscious in 30 seconds and it will kill you in minutes. And I don't know, the cyanide gas, I don't know what it was. And I'm not sure that that, uh, what they called a bomb was it was a gas canister, but I think that the quickest and fastest way to kill the passengers you you open the cockpit door, you throw it at the into the into the um, uh, fuselage the you go into that cockpit all the hijackers are now wearing oxygen masks uh they're uh, sealed off in the cockpit they're safe the passengers are dead or unconscious uh almost instantaneously i'm going to talk about Don't where the planes went next, but you go ahead.
1: Don't. Don't the pilots have gas masks in there, like like oxygen?
0: Yes. And uh, my friend uh Mariel Moore, the flight attendant, said they've got uh, outstanding they had outstanding uh um, uh flight masks. Oh by the way, um, uh I asked her the key for the uh the uh cockpits, was it universal? Or did each cockpit have its own lock and key set? She said she she wasn't sure, so she asked her pilot friend. She says up until 9-11, it was a universal lock and key. So oh. anybody could have, yes. Now they've changed that. Now they have individuated uh, locks and keys. But uh, at that time, anybody with a key from uh, an air, another Boeing could just instantly open that door. Okay, so right. I think the passengers are dead after um, they've made their phone calls and the uh, drone or missile strikes have been made. So the question is, where do they take the airplanes? And I see we've got enough time to talk about this. Oh yeah, we got okay. time. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I know people have said they went to military bases. I think that if they flew these planes to an American military base, they got big problems so they got witnesses. They got to get rid of all these bodies. I think there's only one logical place. All of these planes were headed for the ocean. Uh, follow their flight paths. 77. If it flies over the Pentagon, it's going to head out to the Atlantic. And same thing with the World Trade Center planes. They're headed out for the ocean. And I think they're making a rendezvous with the uh submarine and uh, that launched the missiles and um uh passenger planes can be uh, landed in the ocean um uh there was a, a, a Chinese uh passenger jet with 396 passengers landed in the ocean all 396 survived these guys have practiced it they know how to land a plane with its flaps up its landing gear up how to land and when they land they uh uh, how do they get out? They break a hole in the, uh, they're near the sub at this point, or perhaps it's an Israeli vessel, but I think a sub is a, most logical. Uh, they broke open a window in the cockpit. They've got their, their life vests on, which American Airlines, United Airlines have kindly provided every uh, pilot with. And uh, the sub sends out a small craft to pick them up. And the meantime, does the, the uh, aircraft, the airplanes sink to the bottom of the ocean. That is the best place to get rid of these, Planes and the best place to get rid of these passengers is at the bottom of the sea. Cause Rachel, look at the USS Maine, look at the USS, uh, sorry, the HMS Lusitania. Look at what they tried to do, the USS Liberty. The best place to hide the evidence of a false flag is at the bottom of the sea where nobody can get to it. And I believe that those planes rendezvoused, um, except for 93. Um, and it's interesting that Phil McConnell, uh, who's a former Air Force guy is on a lot of 9-11. Uh, shows He says that the, that they all went down to uh, what he calls Whiskey 386, which is um, uh, it's a special reserved uh, uh, um, air training space uh, 60 miles off the Virginia coast. He says that's where they all went. Um, so um, I'm going to play a little clip for you.
1: Yes, please. Um,
0: okay, go ahead. This is from a um, documentary done by pilots for 9-11 Truth and uh, indicates that Flight um, 11 was still in the sky after... The alleged hit and they've got live recordings of the air traffic control and military guys on this documentary so let me just bring it up and it's pretty interesting and an unidentified target was approaching washington dc from the west a message was sent out in the system that american 11 was still airborne
1: scoggins military boston center just had a report that american 11 is still in the air and it's on the display towards heading towards washington American 11 is still in the air. Yeah. It was Washington. There's was only another aircraft that
0: hit the tower. That's the
1: latest report we have. Okay. I'm mean, going to try to confirm it ideally, but I would assume he's somewhere over uh, either New Jersey or somewhere further south. Okay, so American 11 isn't the hijack at all, then, right? No, he is a hijack. See, American 11 is a hijack. Yes. Yeah. And he's it's, going into Washington. It could be a third aircraft.
0: It could be a third aircraft going on to Washington. Do you have him? Okay. Rachel, did you hear that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I heard it perfect. So there was a report. Flight 11 still in the air, headed south. Another plane, something else hit the, hit the World Trade Center. That's confirmation. Now some people think that's just a fake phone call that was inserted in. I think it's a real call that, um Flight 11 is still airborne and, uh, would be further support for this, uh, interpretation. Um, and, uh, Dick Cheney probably made sure that nobody, no American planes were out there and he was in charge that day you can understand why they didn't put Bush in charge he was, they put him down to read a, a goat about a, a, a pet goat book
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they've got Dick Cheney in command in his bunker and they're actually, uh, if you listen to this entire documentary it's called Intercepted by pilots for 9-11 Truth, there were fighters headed out to the uh, Whiskey 386 area and they were called back to protect Washington, so uh, our fighters we did not go into that region where Phil McConnell says uh, the planes actually went
1: then again, um, whiskey 386.
0: Whiskey 386. Now, very little said about this, and I don't know that Phil McConnell is right about that, but that's what he says, and I, it's just, uh, interesting that he has a parallel, uh, he says the planes were, uh, disintegrated. I, I don't, because he talks about these advanced military explosives, so I think, uh, uh, if that happened, then the, the pot, the Israeli hijackers die. I don't think they would have done it that way, but, um,
1: so you're basically saying we've got the guy that can kill people with a credit card. Mm-hmm. He got on a plane. He hijacked a plane, with maybe with other people.
0: With, uh, at, least other people. Yep. at least four the right. people, absolutely. At least four other people on Flight 11. They're part of his team. Yeah.
1: Okay. So now we got the guy that killed people with a credit card.
0: <laughs> and I think the other guys could kill people with a credit card too, Rachel. These right, are the right. Right. Okay. So we got the, ops the, has. We call yeah. the credit
1: card killers. We oh. got them. Then we got, they hijack a plane. The, their team hijacks some other planes. They're heading to the World Trade Center. They put everybody, they encourage everybody to make calls. Home. Right,
0: which they do. They're real phone calls, and they're make reporting the phone and phone. a real hijacking, yeah.
1: Real real hijacking, real phone calls.
0: These guys know how to act like Arabs and shout Allahu Akbar, that kind of. Right, uh, do all of,
1: that okay. stuff. And then the planes actually hit or do not actually hit? Or is it just no, the they plane? do not
0: hit. They're not a suicide mission. It's it's the missiles or drones. We're talking about either a missile or fired by an Israeli sub or a drone which has been tagged along behind the plane. And Phil McConnell says this is why you can't see it on radar, because they're so close. Uh that's what hits the towers and which hits the Pentagon. The planes themselves then proceed out to the ocean. And people plane, I know people ask, well why don't why doesn't radar I pick said, that up? There's so much control. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: We t- we turn them out to the ocean to mm-hmm. meet up with a sub,
0: right? A sub or an Israeli vessel, but I think a sub is probably a more likely conclusion. It would have fired the missiles if they were missiles, on that, insisting on that. But if it did fire missiles, then the ideal thing would be just rendezvous with a sub. It goes underwater. You sink the plane. The, the planes fall to the you know the plane will, plane will float a little while before it sinks. They probably help it sink by punching holes in the couple passenger windows. Plane goes down to the bottom of the ocean. Nobody knows what happened. That's the best way. That the plane becomes a tomb for all those passengers. Right.
1: Okay. Okay. So now the whole point with Building Seven was mostly just because of the nuclear stuff that was blowing over. Although, do you believe that was controlled demolition, right? Or yes, no?
0: absolutely. That is a classic controlled demolition. Okay. You know uh, Larry Silverstein's comment about Pullet, and I've made the remark in my article Beyond uh, 9/11 and Beyond that I think that the reason Larry Silverstein pulled it, you know, Barry Jennings talked about all these dead bodies in building seven and all these fires and the heat. And it's going to be pretty hard for Larry Silverstein to explain that if the only attack is on the twin towers, how does, you know, building seven was pretty far away. It's the furthest building away. I think Larry had uh, less explaining to do. If he just said the building collapsed, then he had, to, when it collapsed, then he'd to explain all those dead bodies and fires in building seven which were how many the,
1: dead bodies how many dead bodies were
0: in there oh nobody would know but Barry Jennings said he stepped over many dead bodies so uh, nobody knows how many people were killed in building 7 from that blast but i think that was secondary blast from the nukes in the, the basement of the twin towers
1: mm. okay
0: which leaves us with flight 93 and as so we have enough time to talk about flight 93 oh yeah we got
1: time go ahead
0: okay so here's what i think happened on flight 93 i you know i think we've um cheated Todd Beamer and those people on flight 93 in the truth movement. I think there really was uh, a let's rule. I think there really was an attempt to, to retake it. Now, as you know, uh, flight 93 took off very late. There was a 45 minute delay. And I, I would guess, Rachel, that the idea was to have uh, flight 93 probably hit the white house simultane- about simultaneous to the Pentagon strike. But these guys are way behind. The passengers know what's happened in the twin towers in, in the Pentagon and they do try to take the, the cockpit. The different only difference is it's not Muslims; it's Israelis. And the indication for the phone calls is they overwhelmed the guy who is guarding the the, the uh, cockpit. Now, here's what I believe happened. And and Chris Bolin uh, definitely agrees with me. Phil McConnell agrees it was destroyed. I think in a different method. But you know, there were reports that um, from an Air Force officer that Flight 93 was was shot down. Um, you can find that footage on YouTube. Um, uh, but, uh, what I believe happened, Rachel, was this. I believe that the, the passengers were breaking into Flight 93. Um, I believe that the, the hole we see in Shanksville was from, from the discarded missile, which could no longer be used at this point. Uh, Chris Boland talks about the scattered wreckage. This plane was apparently shot from the sky and the wreckage was found everywhere. The in, they found an engine a mile from, from that hole in Shanksville, you know, there's no way an engine can bounce a mile. But I think what happened was this. Dick Cheney was in charge that day. The report came in that um, the passengers were trying to retake the cockpit. And just imagine this, Rachel. Supposing the passengers on Flight 93 took that cockpit back and they subdued the hijackers. And let's say that there's a passenger on board with some flight experience and the flight attendants know something about flying, and they take over the controls. With the help of air traffic control, they successfully land that plane. Maybe there's some people injured, but they're able to put that plane down. Now, if that happened, Rachel... 9-11, the entire plot will be destroyed because if they have those hijackers, some of them alive and they found out that they're Israeli special ops and that Israel did this, there's going to be no war in Afghanistan, no war in Iraq. The entire plot would be exposed. So I don't think, I believe Dick Cheney did order that, that the 93 shot down, but not to save the White House, but to save the plot because Mm -hmm. if they had brought that plane down, the entire uh, uh, 9-11 scenario would have been destroyed once they found out those hijackers were Israelis um, because uh, Michael Chertoff could send home the dancing Israelis but not the hijackers. He could send them back to Israel. So uh, of course Dick Cheney had the perfect cover story if this ever came out. He'd say well I did it for America. Yeah. I felt so deeply that it, I couldn't let another target be hit. But the real reason would be, maybe even with, in, in conjunction with Netanyahu, they said, okay, obliterate it. We're going to have to sacrifice four of our special ops. Well, I'm sure, Rachel, when those special ops took, o- uh, took over those planes, they knew there was a risk. But to me, those guys on Flight 93, they should have just stayed in their, pl- in their seats because actually enough damage had been done to set the entire uh, strategy of wars in the Middle East in motion. They didn't need to hijack Flight 93, but they did. And, but I'm telling you at this point, Rachel, I believe there was a real hijacking, but by Israelis. And I believe that all those phone calls were real, with possible exception of maybe someone yeah. like uh, right. Barbara so, Olson. You know. All
1: right, James, so now, now that – what do we do? If, if everything – if it came to pass that everything you just said actually can be proven and people believe it and all of a sudden it could spread everywhere that this is really what happened, what's the next step for the American people? What do we do? Well, to get justice
0: well, well, one thing we do of course is to keep spreading this message, and that's what the truth movement was founded on and what we keep doing and get more and more people on our side and um, we're still you know we're still playing out this greater Israel plan right now in Syria it, mm. it looks like Iran's next on the hit list we uh you know I uh you know I'm a believer in the Bible and I think that uh, there's an uh, there's an outcome that's indicated I think this is a luciferian plan ultimately. Um, but, uh, and I believe that, uh, I believe the good guys win in the end, but I also think that God wants us to win right here to do his will on earth. So I think you made an interesting comment. Um, you, you, when when we spoke about this, uh, off here a few days ago, he said, what do we do and, um, how do we bring them to justice? You know, I think what you do is you find the most vulnerable person in this whole plot and, and you don't try to, uh try Cheney and Netanyahu and the entire government at once. You go after the most vulnerable person who's part of this thing. You sue him. You put him in the courtroom like a cop would do. And um, you get him to plea bargain and you start working your way up. That's how I do it. But we obviously need a lot of help. We need people... In the Justice Department, we need people in the court system, and you know how rigged that system is. Yeah. there's a lot of work cut out. You were a Ron Paul delegate. you know yeah. how challenging it is to change the system, so I'm not optimistic, but I think that as if the, uh, the, the, our, our mission is to tell the truth and to do whatever we can within the scope of our abilities and I hope that we can reach people in the justice system, in the American military in American intelligence who are still loyal Americans. Where the truth about this?
1: Okay, so when you say the the weakest link, I can think of different things, such as mm-hmm. the people at the air traffic control mm-hmm. that may have yeah. been able to see, or even the people that were doing the seismic readings at the time.
0: You, that would be you a great could, place to start. You uh, could start uh, at those yeah. levels,
1: and like because if if people reading the radar, it's radar. It's just radar. It's not any crazy technology. If they're reading the radar and it shows something that supports this narrative that I think we're saying is as a made-up narrative, if they saw that, then they must have been breached somehow, or maybe it, maybe it didn't go down the way that you're describing. But right. I think we have to dig into like those little, like you just said, the little otsy little um, otsy little pieces of evidence. Dig into those and go up. I think that's a good idea.
0: Right. And uh, another thing to bear in mind is that uh, P-TECH and the MITRE Corporation have often okay. been cited as having links to Israel, and they're providing software for NORAD, the FAA, the American military, and the FBI. It kind of reminds me of that movie The Net, where right. uh, the security system is actually being provided by the bad guys to all the American agencies. Do you remember right. that movie? Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, uh by the way I want to I've always compared your your novel your your set of novels uh Security Through Absurdity which starts with the book called Little Yellow Stickies we talk about what was going on in the defense industry leading up to 911 um uh to be a lot like the movie The Net it reads like a suspense thriller and you're kind of like Sandra Bullock's character in that <laughs> <laughs> you know in that in that novel which talks about your experiences under under all under uh you know uh uh fictitious names
1: That's right <laughs> yeah, I, people do have to realize it is fiction. And it's listed as fiction. My books are in the Rhode Island and Connecticut public high schools um on reading lists for summer reading lists too. Um it's all historical fiction, but everything that comes through the main character I did experience in real life, just so you know.
0: Well, that kind of uh sums up what I wanted to um to say. Um but you you uh again just throw it back to you. You had uh, some amazing experiences um, in the Defense Department. And one of my favorite stories from you um, was uh, when you went to the Pentagon. And uh, this is in your book. And um, there was a general up there uh, with all these potential threats that America faces. And there was one icon up there, and you didn't know what that icon was. You said, what's that icon? icon?" And everybody looked at you like, you don't even know. I just Hmm? wanted to tell people that story.
1: Yeah. No, that actually, it was on the one year anniversary of September 11th, and it was a marketing meeting for all the marketing communications people at the, within L3. At that point, there were 64 divisions. All of us were at this hotel across as a Sheraton, across the street from the Pentagon, and they had um, a general come up and talk to us about the different countries that the U.S. would be invading within the next, uh, they were talking about the next 10 years,
0: but it was. Wow. Yeah, That's they, like it, just like General Wesley Clark, then. It's exa- well,
1: it's almost exactly the exact same list that. They well, they got up.
0: the same briefing then. They basically yeah. got the same memo. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's exactly the same. And um, when in the middle of that, when he finished up, and it was just about lunchtime, all the fire alarms in the place went off, and we had to evacuate. And we evacuated, and we're staring at the Pentagon because there's really nothing to else to look at. And all the other hotels on that street were getting evacuated. And they were all full of the other defense contractors having the same meetings. And at that point, one of the generals walked up and asked me and a coworker of mine if we wanted to go get some lunch because, you know, it's going to be crazy for the next couple hours. Well, you know, all these big military um, fire trucks were rolling in and everything else. And so we said, okay, yeah, we'll go to lunch. And this white utility van pulled up and we crawled into the utility van and there were no windows on the utility van. And we were in, in there with other defense contractors who had been also talking to generals and we're exchanging business cards and we're swooping around. It feels like we're driving in circles and we pull up to this office park. It's a a small office park, brick, all brick buildings. And we go into the, the garage and they offered us straps, Cokes, and we had to sign non-disclosure agreements. And then we all piled into this little, tight little conference room, and they started showing us the, the desktop image of their new, it was called Project Lisa. And this was before I knew about the NSA or any of this stuff. And they were talking about tracking communications to, um, to bank accounts, that might be involved with terrorist activity. And mind you, this is the one year anniversary of September 11th. And we're all just like, whoa, we got, we got our sandwich wraps and everything. And then all the icons come up on the screen and it's projected and it's dark in there. And I raised my hand and nobody else raised their hand. And they said, Oh yeah, what's your question? I said, well, that icon up there, I don't, I don't recognize what that is. The other ones were rock. The other one was like a, um, a atom bomb going off. The other one was, you know, a, a money symbol, you know, different things you could understand what was going on. This one I couldn't understand. I said, what is it? He goes, well, come up and point to it. So I got up and I walked over and I pointed to it. And I said, it looks like a UFO. I was like laughing. And he goes, it is a UFO. I was like, ah. So I had to go sit back down while everybody's looking at me. And um, then one of the generals, the general that drove us there, he um said, no, the United States uh, military does have to have plans in place for things, very, very odd things that might happen. And we have the plans sealed. And should we get word, for instance, if there was a nuclear bomb going to come and hit the United States, we'd unzip that bag and we'd have the plans in place and we'd, we'd get everybody scrambled and we'd, we'd take care of the threat. And I was like, ah, well, I was sitting there, though, in my head at the time, at this one year anniversary of September 11th, I'm thinking, well, why didn't you have plans for build for planes hitting the World Trade Center? And of course, now I know they did, they did have plans for that. But that's so anyhow, long story short, we get out of there and it was about I wanna say I don't know how many months later, but it was disclosed in the newspaper that it was um a utility worker, a phone worker had gone and accidentally cut the cords, the cables to all the hotels on that street. And that's what made all the fire alarms go off at that exact time after that speech was over with it, just about lunchtime on the anniversary of September
0: 11th. Kind of strange that uh, that would occur right on that anniversary um, the way it did. I'm sorry, Rachel, you're cutting out on me again, um, which means uh, our listeners uh, can't hear us. Uh, let me mention a little bit more. Uh, as long as we're on nine eleven, about, uh, Larry Wansley, the head of security for American Airlines. I mentioned before that, um, uh, he said that, uh, he, he got word of the attack and he called his friend Danny Deffenbaugh, who, uh, was, uh, in charge of the, uh, FBI's agent, um is the FBI special agent in charge closest to him in Dallas. He'd been the guy who, who had investigated, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, and um, it uh, there's an amazing article in the Dallas Observer um, written by Wandley's co-author, Carlton Stowers. Um, Deffenbaugh uh, is talking to Stowers, and let me just quote what this article says, because, Rachel, I'm sure you heard that uh, uh, George Bush said he saw the first plane hit, and everybody... Uh, he says, boy, that was a really bad pilot. And, um, uh, uh people say, well, how can you possibly see that the first plane hit since he is, um, supposedly nobody can, can do that on 9 Um, well, there seems to be at least this, uh, co-author of, uh, Larry Wansley, who again was a former FBI agent in charge of security for American Airlines on the, on that morning, according to the article, um, uh, this is when Wansley's on is on the um, phone to Deffenbaugh at the FBI it says quote as he began relaying the information Wansley heard a sudden chorus of muted screams from an adjacent conference room several female employees eyes fixed on a television had just watched a plane fly into the North Tower that's the first tower of New York City's World Trade Center phone still in hand the security director emerged in time to see a cloud of black smoke billowing from the building in downtown Dallas Defenbaugh's secretary had entered his office and turned on his TV. Did you see that? The FBI agent asked Wansley. Neither, however, connected the gruesome images they're watching with their own immediate concern. The initial television reports were suggesting that it had been a small private plane that had flown into the trade center. So uh, uh, Wansley's co-author, Carlton Stowers, is suggesting that Defenbaugh and um, Wansley were actually able to see the first plane hit. I actually think that he's probably just taking um, uh writer's license with this and is probably just uh, embellishing the story. Um, but uh, it is interesting that it corresponds to what President Bush said about having seen the first plane hit on the morning of 9-11. Michelle, are you there?
1: Yeah, I'm still here. I'm listening. Oh,
0: okay. All right.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, good. I uh, wasn't sure if we lost you.
1: No, I'm listening to everything. Go
0: ahead. Okay. Um, no, that was uh you know, that was part of, that was where I was gonna get started going with it was uh, was American Airlines and uh but I as I, I started to realize that uh there were real hijackers uh that day, I realized I really needed to take this in a totally different direction. You know, the things I spoke about tonight are things I've only uh come to mind and you know what put what did it for me, Rachel?
1: No was
0: when I stopped when I started looking at this, okay, if this is an Israeli operation if it's like the U.S.'s liberty and the attack is being carried out by Israelis, then how would they do it? And I realized, yeah, you would put real hijackers on that plane and create that narrative. You've, you've done everything you can already with the, the Mohammed Atta's so-called luggage. Why would you take luggage on a suicide mission? It doesn't make any sense, you know. But they made sure that the luggage didn't get on the plane, so the FBI was able to find it. They it made sure that there was a Mohammed Atta, quote-unquote, left a plane at Logan with a Koran and a flight training manual, and they had made sure that a guy went to a strip club and left his, uh, in Florida and, and said America's gonna see bloodshed tomorrow and left his Koran at the bar along with his ID. You know, for everybody to find, they're planning this trail of evidence and it's clear that they just continued that with the, uh, on 9-11 itself by actually hijacking the aircraft, uh, making out that they were Israelis, killed the passengers, and then went on their merry way. And uh, I believe that is, um, that is the, uh, explanation probably the best explanation but it's nothing i would dogmatically insist upon as you can see Rachel, i've changed my mind um on 9-11 about a number of things i I, I said before i thought no no planes hitting the world trade center was was impossible and ridiculous and uh, i may change my mind on this one again but right now i think that this uh is the most likely scenario is my own view and but i'm only to change my mind on it again Uh, as, uh, you know, more evidence comes, comes, comes out, but I, I, I'd like to really nail this thing down and, um, and, uh, as to how exactly it was done. Go to your um, blog.
1: If you haven't been to James com. You could go. He's got a plethora of posts there that are just mind blowing. They're so well researched. And if you want to follow what he was talking about tonight in this interview, um, check it out. Uh, I'm I'm halfway there with you on this. I I think this is one of the best theories that I've heard so far, James. To tell you the truth, I'm still not all the way on this Pentagon thing because uh, it's a Pentagon, for God's sake. <laughs>
0: well, um, well, they had to have some way of doing it. Some somebody had to have their fingers down on the suppress the defenses button for this to go yeah. off. Yeah, it, <laughs> they, they, they they definitely got hit by something. It, 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 how and why. Maybe it was partly because of those defensive drills that were taking place that day they were off their guard.
1: Well, right on, James. Thank you so much for being with us. It's James Perloff. Thank you so much.